You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. We are in Jonah this morning. You're like, well, where is this guy going? It's Palm Sunday. (laughs) You'll see. We all come to a crossroad where we have to decide whose we are, who we will follow and trust, if we haven't already. If we are honest with ourselves, we know we need Jesus. We know we sin on a regular, if not daily, if not moment by moment basis. Even if you don't know who Christ is, even if you're searching, even if you're just wondering about this whole thing of faith and religion and what it's all about, if you're honest with yourself, if we are honest with ourselves, we can recognize that we've lied. We can recognize that we've had a moment of sexual immorality at one point in our life, either in thought or action. We've had an impure motive. We have wasted the treasures, the talents, time that God gives us to manage. But the question is, is what does it take, what will it take for us to realize how weak and helpless we are? Must God hurl a storm at us and toss us into a stormy sea to get our attention like he did with Jonah. To get to a place where we cry out to God, acknowledging that he is God, and we are not. By the way, you know, that's one of the only two certain things in this life, right? That he is God, we are not, and that we're all going to die. So we should get to know him. (laughs) He is sovereign. We are definitely not. We are weak, and he is strong. Then out of humility, offer him a sacrifice and praise of thanksgiving that he is who he says he is. Only he can save us. Not anything we do or can do. As if it is on us, we've got no hope. There is nothing to sing about. We do this for nothing. But praise God, I can 100% conviction say that he is who he says he is. He is God, and he has already paid the price for our salvation. A couple of weeks ago, we had three defining principles on what our response should be to God's turbulent mercy. Do you guys remember this? God's turbulent mercy, a mercy that can look like a a stormy sea, a mercy that can look like getting even tossed off of the boat and into the stormy sea. And those three, the first of those three principles was this. When we are in a self-induced storm because of our sin, I'm sorry, I'm going backwards and forwards. Y'all, give me a second here. <laughs> Turbulent mercy, three points. We should reject the futility of turning to idols when in a storm instead of embrace Christ. I know I could have looked on the screen, but if I didn't know where I was in my notes, we should just go eat. <laughs> Some of you may want to do that anyway. Okay, back on track. 
The second principle, we need to shift our focus to Christ and off of ourselves. Point being, I just messed up. Not about me, it's about him. Shifting our focus off of ourselves to Christ as Jonah did. The beginning of Jonah, we see how Jonah was fully self-centered. Could care less about what God wanted him to do. In fact, did the exact opposite. Could care less about the lives of the pagan settlers that he was on the ship with. And then the third principle being this, to remember that the mercy of God will rarely look like what we think or want it to, but in the end, in hindsight, whether we get to see that picture here on earth or in our future eternity with him, it will always be better than we can imagine. If you have been here during this series, you recall Jonah to taking multiple steps down when God specifically called him to get up. Get up out of bed. Get up. Go up to Nineveh. But instead, Jonah went down to Joppa to take a ship down to Tarshish. He, then he went down into that ship. And then he went further down into the ship, into the belly of it, fell, to, fell asleep, Sailors, captain of the ship, came, woke him up. Get up, pray. Here's the pagan captain saying, you get up. You should pray to your God. An unbeliever calling Jonah to do what a believer should be doing. And then he gets tossed overboard and went down again further into the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. Then God graciously saved his life from, dying, from drowning by appointing for Jonah to be fish snacks, right? A great fish came and swallowed him. One more step down for Jonah, only this time God ordained it, down into the belly of the fish. A step that God caused him to take. When God mercifully hurled that storm onto the sea, he accomplished a few things that we know of. First, to begin to shift Jonah's focus off of himself to others and eventually to God. Second, salvation for the pagan sailors, though they had to sacrifice the things of this world, their cargo, their livelihood, their reputation, they gained eternity. Third, to punish Jonah for his disobedience. And fourth, he appointed a salvation for Jonah, salvation of sorts, put that in quotes, by fish, Using Jonah's punishment for good. The good for the salvation of the sailors. The good for not just allowing Jonah to die. So that fifth, as we will see today, to bring him to a place of humble repentance. This morning we see that Jonah is finally beginning to settle on the ocean floor of his prideful anarchy against God. Would you stand with me, if you're willing and able, while I read our passage this morning? You're welcome to read along with me if you want. We are in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the very last verse of chapter 1, and we'll go through verse 9 of chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. 
I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more to your temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. There's a saying that we never, there's a saying that goes like this. We never realize that Jesus is all you need until he is all you have. Anybody else heard that before? Maybe you've experienced that personally in your life. We oftentimes don't realize that Jesus is all we need until we are brought to a place of knowing that he is all that we truly have. You see, we have all sinned. There's not one person in this room. We have that in common. Whether you know Jesus Christ as your Savior or not, we all have that in common, that we have all sinned. We have all disobeyed God in one form or fashion. We have taken those steps down and down and further down. We have chased idols in response to our disobedience like Jonah did. Trying to be distracted. Trying to find comfort. And yet the problem is inside us. The sin is inside us. But through God's sovereign and turbulent mercy, we may find God hurling storms into our life like he did Jonah. Storms in our lives, most of us aren't going to set sail across the ship, uh, sea like Jonah did. Uh, some of you may have. But most of us are going to experience these storms through things like health issues. Relationship issues. Issues at work. Issues with finances. Issues with kids. Maybe other things. Storms that God will sovereignly allow to come into our life if we induce them on ourselves through our disobedience and other times storms that he uses to test us, to grow our faith. God will allow us, ordain us to get tossed overboard. And while it seems cruel and sounds cruel, and, and this is where a lot of people will say, well, how can a loving God do this? Or how can a loving God allow this? It's because he loves us that he does. Because he desperately wants to have our attention in our heart. Because he knows that by only us giving him his heart, are we truly saved? Can we truly experience the peace and joy in this life that he will freely give us? 
so that we too might come to that place of shifting that focus from ourselves and up to him and to even others around us. So that we too might come to that place of feeling guilt and even some shame for our sin, causing us to have conviction, which will then produce the humility we need to fall on our faces before our loving Savior who has paid the, cro- paid the price, who has offered the cross on our behalf. And so that we come to that place that we have no doubt that Jesus is all we need. You see, we move on with life. We do the next thing. We get distracted and, and we're doing things and, and we forget that he is all that we need. Some of you even this morning are sitting here thinking about what you're going to do after church already. What you could have done yesterday that you didn't. Oh, the sun's out. I've got to do this, this, and this. And yet, God is most concerned with your heart and your attention. And yes, it doesn't mean we ignore our jobs or our chores or being a good steward of what he's given us. But how do we invite him in to that part of our life? You see, he's already there. So Lord, how can I accomplish this chore while meditating on a promise of yours? Or or how can I do this for your glory instead of for my sake so I can go relax or so I can get this done and I'll look good or so so so-and-so will get off my back so the chore's done or whatever our reason is. It is in and through the places that God takes us that he becomes more real to us. It is in and through the places God takes us that he becomes more real to us. He is most concerned with our heart for him. See, God is our loving father. Our sin does disappoint and grieve him, as it should. He paid the most expensive thing that could ever be paid, the death of his son, the broken intimacy and fellowship with the son while his son was on the cross, paying for all the sin that he did not commit, our sin. If somebody laid down $10 billion for you on your behalf to cover everything that you might ever need, every debt you've ever had, everything that you know, and then they just said, ah, forget you. Wouldn't we feel disappointment? Wouldn't we feel some grief in that? Lack of appreciation, lack of gratitude, lack of thankfulness in that? But see, God punishes us to bring us back to him when we sin. And he's not a God who's snickering and laughing that, ooh, getting to shoot the lightning bolts at us along the way, like, woo-hoo-hoo, rubbing his hands together, waiting to shoot the next one. Nehemiah and I play a game every time I leave the house where we, we shoot I love you at each other as we're walking out the door, as I'm walking out the door to leave. It's not like God's sitting there with his lightning bolt finger ready to go, waiting and laughing to punish us. It's a, it's a I love you, so I'm going to do this. I would far rather you 
love me through your obedience and me never to have to do this. He is our loving Father. And we see this in the story of Jonah. God did all of these things to Jonah to bring him to a place of humility to where he would finally pray to the Lord his God as we see in the first verse of chapter 2. God is so concerned with our heart that he will send storms, great fish, and move mountains for the hearts of his children. Approximately today, Palm Sunday, I don't know the exact date, around over 2,000 years ago, Jesus wept with compassion for Jerusalem for the coming storm God would hurl at them because of their disobedience and sin. Luke 19 gives us this account. As he approached, as Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Because they did not recognize that Jesus was there. Their Savior. God in flesh walking among them. And Jesus didn't go, ha, that's what you get. He wept for them. We see that compassion coming out of him for the discipline that was coming. And he does the same for us. Perhaps you're in the middle of a storm right now. And as Gary preached a few weeks ago, this is also certain. We're, we're either in the middle of one, about to go through one, or just came out of one. Or you've recently even been tossed overboard. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I can confidently say it is for his glory and your benefit, regardless for the reason of the storm. Nobody has the testimony of things were going well, life was perfect, I was getting promoted, I was making the money, my kids were behaving, my marriage was good, and I grew so much in my faith. I just was so sold out. No, we don't do that. Because when things are going great, we start thinking, huh, I got this. This is about me. That focus shifts from off of God back to ourselves. So God, in his grace and turbulent mercy, will send those storms, send those opportunities for us to be tossed out of our comfort zone for our sanctification, the cleansing and purifying of our old self so that we might become more like him. He is mighty to save, however unconventional it may seem to us. For Jonah, he became fish food. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this trial or storm that you might be facing or feeling or going through is most likely God 
trying to tap you on the shoulder and say, look to me. Look to me. I have eternity in mind for you. I love you. While you are still sinning and still rejecting me, I went to the cross and paid for your sins. Will you turn from the fleeting pleasures of this earth, the alcohol, the media, the the temptations, the career, the money that are going to leave you empty? They might feel good and work for a little bit, but I promise you, they will dry up. Turn from them. Turn to me. Turn to Jesus. Say yes to him. Call to the Lord in your distress, as Jonah did in verse 2. God will answer you. He is faithful to listen. He is faithful to answer when we cry out to him in distress. There is not one account in Scripture that God doesn't. The psalmist will say, it feels like you're not. And then I will still choose to follow you. And then God answers. Not always on our timetable. Because honestly, our version of the timetable is pretty messed up. And yet while we're in the trouble, while we're in the trial, in the storm, he supplies us what we need. He supplies the peace that we need, the hope to press on, the brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for us and come alongside us. That's why we do church. To be there for each other. So when somebody says, how can I pray for you? Tell them. You know what? I need more wisdom. Who doesn't always need more wisdom? There's a prayer request every time, right? I need to understand better how much God loves me. Who doesn't need to know that every time? Me? (laughs) All of you. Raise your hand. All you. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I could go on. There is always something we can pray for each other on. And if nothing comes to mind, just say, you know what? God saved me. Praise him for that. Praise him for saving me. We always have something that we can encourage each other with, pray for each other with. Call out to the Lord as David did in Psalm 18, 5 through 6. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Listen, his answer to us, as he helps us, is not a guarantee of wealth. It's not a guarantee of health or prosperity, as the world would describe it. It will most likely not look like what we think it should or what we might want it to. But in the end, it will be better than we can imagine. 
And let me be perfectly clear. In the answer that Christ gives us, there is a cost. There is a cost. Salvation is free. The cost in the ongoing relationship is this. It's, it's our life. It is a surrendering of our life to him. It cost him his. Should we not also have some skin in the game? As Jesus says in Matthew 10:39, anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The life of this world is what we are giving up and surrendering. The empty, fleeting pleasures of this world so that we can embrace the eternal love and pleasures that God desires to give us. You see, the significance of Palm Sunday is that it began the week leading up to the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. Where God's Son, who lived a perfect life here on earth with every human emotion, every physical limitation, and every temptation that we have, he walked this earth so that we now have a God who can empathize and understand what we feel what we see, what we taste, when we cry, when we stub our toe in the middle of the night and want to say all of those things. Don't you think Jesus stubbed his toe? I do. (laughs) We forget about the humanity that he had and experienced. He knows that temptation. Wham! There was a movie where the guy was like, father, mother, uncle, brother, sister. I love that line. (laughs) See, Jesus came. He walked this earth so that he too could empathize. And then he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. And then his resurrection where he defeated death, which we will celebrate next Sunday together, completes the good news, the only true gospel, the best news. And so this week, we begins our opportunity to lament and reflect. And this isn't a week to get depressed and down in the dumps, but it is certainly a week to have some time for somber meditation and reflection along the way. At the great cost it took because of our sin, my sin, your sin. A quick observation about our text between verses 1 and 2, and maybe you've already picked, on it, picked up on it, it switches to first person here. So, so far it's a story about Jonah and then we get to his prayer in verse 2 and it is Jonah speaking. And some believe that this is evidence for Jonah either writing the book or definitely providing the content of the book. I also believe that as well. Who else would know what he prayed in the belly of the fish, right? Not the plankton or the 
fish, they're not, they're not talking about it. They're probably freaked out. There's a dude in here with me. <laughs> Next, in verse 3, Jonah, in his humbled and sanctified by fish digestion state, recognizes that it is God doing this to him. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. It's easy to spot somebody who is in a humble place, as Jonah is here. They've given up on playing the blame game. You know that game that we all play when we don't want to own our part? You're never going to control the other person in what they do. You are 100% responsible for your part. And the bummer is, is most of the time we can't even fix ourselves on our own. Actually, all the time. We need Jesus to help us fix ourselves. But we should absolutely, 100% every time, own our part. So in confrontations, parents, here's a quick tip for you. You got two kids, co-workers, maybe you're not a parent, however this applies to you. Two kids at each other. The goal is to bring each child to a place of saying, what is your part in this? What is your sin in this disagreement? And you need to own that and ask God to help you with that, forgive you with that, and so that then you can go humbly to the other person, whether they've offered it or not, and can repent. Husbands, wives, same thing. What is your part? Quit pointing your finger at the other person. God's responsible for them. God's got them. What is your part? Own it. Confess it. Ask for God's saving mercy to help you not continue it. Jonah is in this place. He is owning it. He is recognizing where he is at. Jonah continues praying in verse 4, but I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. The imagery of the wording here is profound to me. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. That sounds like a long ways down to me. The earth's gates, life itself shut behind me forever. This was written by somebody who was at a place of believing that their life on earth was over and done. See, Jonah didn't have the heads up that he was going to be barfed up on a beach in a couple of days. He didn't know about that. He didn't know about the fish coming to save him when he got tossed overboard. He didn't know he was going to survive the belly of the fish. This is, this is someone giving his situation and sin the credit it was due, like we looked at first couple verses of chapter 1. At the climax then, when all seemed lost, at just the right time, at the end of verse 6, say this with me, 
Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. You raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. This is what we celebrate. This is our hope. This is our salvation. This is the best news. Paralleling this, I thought of Romans 5, 6, where Paul is telling the church, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time. God's never late. He's never early. He's always at just the right time. The breakers and the billows are the waves. If you've been in the ocean or if you've been in a wave pool or of some sorts and, and you get out of rhythm and they just keep going over you. And maybe this has happened when you were younger and, or you've even been caught in an undertow and you feel helpless. And it took maybe your parent or somebody else reaching down and grabbing you and lifting you back up onto your feet. Peter sinking in the waves as he was attempting to walk on them to Christ and Jesus reaching down and grabbing him and pulling him back up. The waves, the billows, and the breakers washing over us of the storms of life, our own sin causing them often. And Jesus, in mercy through the cross, reaches down and grabs our hands and pulls us up. As my life was fading away, verse 7, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From the very beginning of the book, we have seen that Jonah's root issue for causing him to forsake and Rebel against God was, was a trust issue, his bad motivator. Jonah's prideful actions proclaimed that he knew better than God. I don't need to go do what you're asking me to do, no matter how ridiculous it sounds for me to go to a terrorist nation that is our enemy and preach the gospel to them. Instead, I'm going to go the opposite direction and go this way. And we do the same when we live a life contrary to what God desires for us. I believe in verses 8 and 9 that we see a key to overcoming that trust issue in the form of idols. Jonah's idol was himself thinking that he knew better than God, so I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. Idols are not just the wooden and stone statues that we think of. They're anything that would distract us or tempt us to turn from God. Netflix. Your phone. Social media. 
school, kids, you got to do it. But getting the best GPA for the GPA's sake is an idol. As opposed to doing your best for God's glory. Letting the grades land where they may. Career. A good marriage. All of these things, not all of them, but several of these things are good things. But how quickly we can take a good thing and it become an idol to distract us. In the end, they will abandon us. In the end, they are worthless. And when we abandon that faithful love, we abandon the perfect love of God. We abandon the sacrifice and grace that Jesus Christ showed us on the cross. We abandon the counseling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we abandon our faithful love, we incur death. The ROI or the return on investment or the paycheck of idols is death. So that's principle one, if you want to call it that. When we abandon our faithful glove, we incur death. And then we see that Jonah offers God sacrifices of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving after he was just in the storm, tossed overboard, thought he was going to drown, eaten by a fish, hanging out in the belly of the fish, offering God a sacrifice of thanksgiving with no hope that his physical life is going to be spared. A thankfulness for who God is, what he has done, what he promises to do. I love what Webster says about thankfulness and gratitude. It says this, a lively sense of good received. A lively sense of good received. And a an enthusiastic understanding of good received. I think I've said enough of the good stuff already to not go over that again. Do I need to say it again? You guys following me? The good of Jesus Christ, his love for us, going to the cross for us, his willingness to help us along the way after we choose him as our Lord and Savior. The good we have received And then Jonah at the end says, Thus remember that salvation is from the Lord. We need to preach the good news of the gospel to ourselves first thing every day, throughout each day, at the end of the day. How quickly we are distracted and forget it. If we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, if you don't know him, as delicious as that food is, knowing him is more important. Would you be willing to talk to somebody about that? If you've got questions, I'm available. I'll be up here for a little bit if you need. Kurt's here in the middle. Gary's over here in the red. And there are others as well that I know would love to share Jesus Christ with you and what it means to be forgiven. 
Don't forget the church is open this Friday for Good Friday. If you'd like to come, you as an individual, you and your family, and there'll be elements. You can take communion together, just an opportunity in a sanctuary, uh, if that would be helpful. Away from the distractions and chores of home, uh, where you could come and you could just reflect on the significance of what this Friday means. Let me pray for us before we go eat. Father God, just as we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord, may we continue to live in him, that we be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Lord, just as you have taught us through your word, that we would be overflowing with gratitude, that we would offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, regardless of where we are at. Our gratitude would overflow, Lord, as a witness for your sake. Lord Jesus, you raised our lives from the pit. So, Father, let our lives, our words, our actions proclaim that this week to every person we come into contact with. And Father, I now offer up thanksgiving to you for our salvation, for our relationship with you, knowing that you've initiated it, that you provide it, it's from you and through you and for you. And we thank you in addition for your provision of this food that we're about to enjoy, the fellowship. Pray for blessing over those who have prepared it. Lord, that we would be conscientious and kind of those who might need to be in line before us and opportunities, Lord, that we might have to reach out and choose to sit with somebody we might not normally and get to know them. And Lord, I pray that there would be conversations about you and your glory today while we eat, opportunities to pray for each other and with each other. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.